0: Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a long time, but uh, several weeks at least, since we covered St. John Paul II's The Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World. In November of 21 was the 40th anniversary of that apostolic exhortation, and believe me, after 40 years, certain things become irrelevant, and certain things take on a heightened importance, and the role of the Christian family in a modern world is more relevant now than when it was initially written, because we're losing our bearings, so to speak, in, in the world. Now, this is episode 381. And I want you to know that today and our next episode are two parts of a similar message because we're just hitting the first part today, but there's an important part following this that you really need to hear. But what we're gonna deal with today is divorce. And we're gonna start the question, why Catholics can't divorce? But I wanna start with a special note. Uh, The reason I'm doing this broadcast, and the reason behind a lot of what I do on Faith and Family Radio is simply I don't want to see people get hurt. I don't want to see adults get hurt. I don't want to see kids get hurt, and I do realize the tremendous pain and difficulties following a divorce that a lot of you who are listening to me right now have already experienced, and I don't want to add to your pain, but my goal my goal is to try to prevent others from suffering from what you've experienced. So I need your, your grace, so to speak, because unless those who have been divorced will stand with, say, somebody like me who's trying not to bash anyone, but to keep people from hurting themselves through an unnecessary divorce, and by that, Counselors, professional counselors, and marriage experts would say about 78% of marriages that end in divorce could be saved and end up in happy marriages. And yet, I was at one Catholic men's conference, you may not believe this, but I was asked not to speak on marriage because a number of the men in the audience had been divorced. And I said something to them like I just said to you, I'm not trying to hurt anyone or add to their pain. But I'm asking for those who have been divorced to stand with me to try to help those who are tempted. I think I've mentioned this before, but it's one of those experiences you remember for a long time. Again, it was at a Catholic men's conference, and a guy came up to me and said, Steve, I already have the papers drawn up for divorce from the attorney. I've already paid first and last on a condo. So I decided to come here today, and if you have anything to say to stop me, feel free to go right ahead. (laughs) I was like, no pressure, no pressure. I can't quite remember what happened to that man. I would like, if you're listening to me, let me know because I'd like to find out what happened. All right. Most people know that the Catholic faith teaches that Catholics can't divorce from a valid marriage and then remarry. But somebody listening, and I've had both Catholics and Protestants say this to me, but Catholics do get divorced. And in fact, about 28% of Catholics get divorced. And the United States, if that's your experience, you might get a colored picture of Catholics and divorce and remarriage, because this was back to 2011. And it's hard to get the exact statistics worldwide on this. But back in 2011, the United States had 6% of the world's Catholics, and yet they had 60% of the world's annulments. And today I'm hearing it's up near 70% of the world's annulments coming from a nation with only 6% of the world's Catholics. And the United States is in first place in annulments, and declarations of nullity by a very large margin. Uh, Last I heard in second place was Italy, but they're way, way, way behind the United States. And if you want where in the United States is leading the world, it's the Detroit diocese. They set the world's record for annulments. Um, They hand out more annulments than any place else in the world, at least they did as of a few years ago. In 1969, there were only 338 annulments issued in the United States, 338. In 1995, there were 60,000. So something really happened during the decade of the 70s and 80s and at least through the first half of the 90s. The peak of divorces in the United States, the peak of the amount of annulments issued in the United States was... In the 1980s. And the 1980s were the time when St. John Paul II wrote The Role of the Christian Family in the Modern World. One of the reasons the Catholic Church puts its foot down and says there's a break here a valid marriage, you can't break up by divorce. It's just, you're not supposed to do it. And yet, the average length of marriage in the United States, and Catholics are a little better than the general population, but it's not saying much. We're so far skewed compared to the rest of the world. But the average length of marriage in the United States is 8.2 years. And that can certainly change. There's a number of ways you can do it. Uh, we've had broadcasts, and I don't have them at my fingertips, where, you know, how to reduce that marriage rate by certain things you do in your parish. Uh, or your diocese to bring those numbers of Catholic divorces down. And now the number of annulments uh, now is around 40,000 a year. And some people say, well, everything's getting better now because you know the number of annulments ha- are down from the 70,000, 72,000 peak down to around 40,000 in some. But yet, <laughs> you need to take into effect. A lot of Catholics are just blowing off what the church says about marriage and divorce uh, because there's just simply fewer numbers of petitions for annulments. Uh, There's the number of Catholics entering Catholic marriages has plummeted. And so, and at the same time, the Catholic population in the United States has increased. So uh, things may not be as rosy as some commentators might have you believe. So, why can't a Catholic, divorce from a valid marriage, and then remarried, And I like to illustrate it through a situation, a confrontational situation that I experienced when I was a Protestant pastor. There was a nice young woman in our congregation who wanted to marry a man who uh, had some questions in his life, and including a divorce, and he wanted to remarry and didn't really see a whole lot of uh, stability in there. And I recommended she at least put a serious pause on this. Well, lo and behold, not this girl's mother, but her grandmother was furious at me. And she made an appointment to see me, and I was sure she was going to just really give me Uh, you know, a tongue lashing. And she came in. She asked me, well, why did you say this? And I said this. It's my belief that when you're joined in marriage, that the two become one, as Jesus said, that when you divorce, it's nearly impossible for that one to become two again. You leave a part of yourself in that other person, and that other person leaves a part of his self in you." And she looked at me and she said, you're absolutely right, because she had been divorced and remarried. And so we had a pretty civil conversation and maybe some differences, but we were on the same team. And I say that because I started this broadcast saying, what's my motivation doing this? There's a lot of topics that are a lot easier to cover, believe me, than divorce in the contemporary world. But I just don't want to see people get hurt, adults or their children. And divorce hurts people. And if there's a way to prevent it, and one of the ways you prevent it is saying, don't divorce. And ultimately, the one who really loves people and doesn't want them to get Hurt says this, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And that's Jesus Christ, as recorded in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. And what John Paul II does in the role of Christian family in the modern world is simply reverberates the teaching of Jesus in the late 20th century. And I came across this, and when I was in no man's land, I had come to a conviction that Jesus meant what he said when he said marriage was indissoluble, a valid marriage. And I had resigned my pastorate and was reading the role of Christian family in a modern world. And to be quite honest with you, I didn't think much of the papacy. Um, John Paul II came to Boston while I was in seminary, just 45 minutes away. I didn't go see him. But when I read this and knew what courage it took for a world leader to stand up in a modern world while divorce and divorce and remarriage had reached its peak in the world at that very time, I'll tell you, he really got my attention because I just appreciate a Christian man of courage. And so John Paul II spoke, and he didn't speak harshly. He spoke charitably, but his voice was heard. And unfortunately, the reverberation of Christ's teaching isn't heard quite as loud today as often in America as you would think it needs to be. And St. John Paul II, he didn't lose his voice when it came to the indissolubility of marriage. Because apart from this, you don't have a family, because if the marriage splits, the family splits. And if the marriage splits and the family decays, becomes weaker, so does the culture, so does the world, so does the church. This is, this is the heart of it, but it's a hard truth. St. John Paul II said, in The Role of the Christian Family in a Modern World, section 20, and I'm going to read it, and please listen to it. Quote, it is a fundamental duty of the church to reaffirm strongly the doctrine of the indissolubility of marriage. To all those who in our times consider it too difficult or indeed impossible to be bound to one person for the whole of life, and to those caught up in a culture that rejects the indissolubility of marriage and openly mocks commitment of spouses to fidelity, it is necessary to reconfirm the good news of the definitive nature of that conjugal love that Christ has in its foundation and strength for marriage. And that's, it's the duty of the church to reaffirm strongly and we need some St. John Paul II role of the Christian family in a modern world, vitamins and minerals. The voice needs to be heard. It's silent, too silent. A little later on in section 20, now the laity. To bear witness to the inestimable value of the indissolubility and fidelity of marriage is one of the most precious and most urgent tasks of christian couples in our day now we live in basically a protestant country initially um well actually it it was a catholic country initially if you've been to saint augustine florida and realize that before plymouth rock catholics founded our country but nonetheless it has this protestant influence widespread in the formation of this land as a nation, and Protestants teach that a divorce from a valid marriage can be followed by remarriage, and since we live in a Protestant culture, it's obviously affecting Catholics, and also, I believe Catholics should be equipped to help our neighbors who believe the Bible is God's word when it comes to marriage, but they're hearing a different story from their pastors, I'm going to give you in just a few minutes how you can help them in a very realistic way. And it's a little bit complicated, not complicated, but you're just going to have to stay with me because we're going to use the scriptures because they're being misused. Now, those who want to build a case that Jesus didn't, really mean the indissolubility of marriage or divorce is okay, followed by remarriage. They start building their case very often from Deuteronomy chapter 24, and it goes like this. Moses wrote, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a bill of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house then she departs out of his house. It goes on to say that uh, basically if that second husband doesn't like the woman too, the first one can't take her back. God was just trying to put a restraint on sinful hearts so that women aren't bounce around like a checkerboard uh, between various men. So that's what God's intent was, trying to reduce the level of wickedness in man's heart, okay? Because the law could affect external behavior, but the heart has to be changed in order for behavior to change. And that's what our next episode is about. So the case is often presented with Deuteronomy 24. The Bible teaches you can give a bill of divorce for some reason, okay? Then they proceed to the New Testament And very often, they'll skip over Mark 10, which I've already read to you, and they'll skip over Luke 16, which is a very short teaching by Jesus in St. Luke's Gospel, Luke 16, verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. But what they do do, they go to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19, okay? And in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this in verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy 24, I've just read to you. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, this is a Revised Standard Version, makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is the big question. This is the question that ultimately brought me into the Catholic Church, and I didn't have any living friends to help me through this but I had some really, 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 really great friends called the Church Fathers who helped me immensely. And one of the things about the Church Fathers, there was a whole group of them that were Greek-speaking. That was their native language. They didn't have to learn all this stuff in seminary, okay? And the Greek-speaking Church Fathers, I'll just give you the first thousand years of the Church. The Greek-speaking Church Father, there was no question what Jesus was talking about okay the the greek-speaking church fathers stand shoulder to shoulder with saint john paul ii in the role of christian family in the modern world the catechism of the catholic church and the sayings of jesus this isn't anything different but except on the ground of unchastity now what many protestants misunderstand because maybe they're not up to speed really in their language studies and i'm going to stay in english but explain to you what's behind these words That word unchastity in Greek is porneia, and we get like the English word pornography from that same uh, Greek root, but pornography can be any number of things, okay, of immoral nature. Well, the word unchastity, porneia, can mean any number of things, but Protestants tend to think who building a case for the permission to divorce and remarriage from a valid Christian marriage will say, no, that's actually adultery. Now, pernea can mean committing an act of adultery, but be aware that in Greek, there is a very specific uh, separate word for adultery. It's used right in this verse. Uh, Except on the ground of unchastity makes her an adulteress. There's a noun and a verb for adultery. So, what does the exception clause mean? Because the bottom line, this is repeated in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Matthew, just like St. Mark and St. Luke, says from the lips of Jesus, there's no divorce and remarriage, except Matthew includes, except on the ground of unchastity. And in a certain sense, determining what this exception clause means is very high stakes for the future of the church and our nation and i'm just going to say what i <laughs> what i think okay i'm getting old enough to do that all right the time is past for catholics simply to get on the radio and tell how everybody's wrong in the protestant church rather than getting on the radio and telling Catholics how they can help their Protestant neighbors keep their marriages and families together and make our culture and country survive through the crisis it's going through, okay? So we want to equip ourselves. And I'm giving you a quick summary today from the Appendix 2, in the book I co-wrote with Jim Burnham called Christian Fatherhood, Appendix 2, and I spent a lot of time digesting really my whole research through the fathers and a crisis, my Protestant pastorate. It's the reason I left my Protestant pastorate, and it's the reason that John Paul II attracted me to the Catholic Church, and I tried to put it in just a few pages, and it's clear enough, I hope, that anybody, you don't need to know the original languages. Okay, but here's here's the point. What does porneia mean uh, in Matthew 5.32 when he says, except on the ground of unchastity, porneia? Now, again, porneia has a wide meaning, and you determine a meaning of a particular Greek word by its context, and context determines meaning. And if you can find Other context where this word is used, then you know you're on the right track. Other context of a similar nature. Well, the Council of Jerusalem was one of the most important meetings. In fact, it was the most important meeting in the entire book of Acts. And what do we do with the Gentiles? Okay, do they have to do everything Jewish people do, or are there just some essential things that even Noah had the Gentiles do? And it says, In my judgment, this is from Acts 15, we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from pollution of idols, from unchastity, porneia, and from what is strangled from blood. Now, all of those things, three or four things, are found in Leviticus 17 and Leviticus 18. And so what it's saying is that, things that were prohibited in Leviticus 17 and 18 were also things that had been in existence before Moses gave the law. So they continue after the law for the Gentiles, namely what we would call incestuous marriages or uh, marriages between two close of family relations. And so those would not be valid marriages. So no one can divorce except those who are in unlawful marriages. And today, for instance, if somebody would have a conversion experience and be in one of the so-called same-sex marriages, the same would apply. They could divorce from a homosexual marriage if they basically woke up to what the Scriptures were saying. Then you go further, and this really brings it home. You have 1 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, And in 1 Corinthians 5, there's actually an occasion of incest taking place in this early Catholic church. Corinth was a rather wild place, and not everybody cleans up their act and gets things straight uh, right after they convert. So St. Paul had to write this. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you of a kind that is not even found among the pagans, for a man is living with his father's wife, okay? Okay. There's a kind of morality among you that is not even found among the pagans. Okay, that word translated immorality in Greek is porneia. The word for the immorality in Acts 15 is porneia. The word for unchastity in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 is porneia. And in 1 Corinthians 5, you have an explicit incidence of incest or or too close relations, having marriage-like relations, and Paul says, you know, break it up. Why do you break it up? Because this is an unlawful marriage to begin with or unlawful relation. So what does the exception clause mean? It, it just, it means that you don't divorce except for those things, found Leviticus 17 and 18. These are the same rules that were Given to the world through Noah, that were around the time of Abraham before the law was given, and it applies after the law was given. So, if you're in an unlawful marriage, you can obviously divorce from that. Other than that, it's lifelong marriage for a valid Christian marriage. I urge you. I think it's worth the price of the book because I'm saying this is this is where the future unfolds. John Paul II in this role of the Christian family in the modern world, says the future of the world and of the church passes through the family. And this is why he declared so strongly that it's the fundamental duty of the church to reaffirm strongly the doctrine of the indissolubility of marriage. Now, we're going to take this next time and see how this transpires, and where the really good news for Christian marriage is found in this. So get a copy of Christian Fatherhood Appendix 2, and it's just a few pages, but I think you could use it to really help your neighbors and friends. And I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to Faith and Family. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org to learn more about Catholic family life.